Hey everybody, just a little intro this week. We had some recording troubles with this issue on Catherine's end. So I've done some cleanup, tried to make it sound as good as possible. We're going to go ahead and run with the first part of our discussion of Twilight. And uh, then we're going to wrap it up next week. We're going to re-record some parts and hopefully sort of bring things back together. So enjoy this episode, Twilight Part 1, and then we will continue next time. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. We are here this week to talk about a film that my opinion has changed on radically, and in some ways it seems like everybody's opinion has changed on radically in the last 12 years or so. And that is Catherine Hardwick's 2008 Twilight, an incredibly successful adaptation of Stephanie Meyer's novel of the same name. So we're going to uh, have a great talk about that. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and I am always joined by... Sister. My sister. That's right. Welcome. Uh, so this film was was kind of your idea. You've wanted to talk about it for a bit. Uh, it doesn't really fall into, you know, up until this point, we've really been talking a lot about movies that are personal faves of ours, but, you know, have never really found purchase in society, you know, people at large. And uh, this one is kind of the opposite, right? Twilight was very successful when it came out. It seems like opinion has changed a bit. Like a lot of people sort of treat the Twilight series with a pretty great deal of disrespect these days, um, which I'm sure we'll have a chance to, to chat about a little bit. But uh, So I'm going to let you kick it off this week. I guess we'll get started with uh, what we've been watching. So what you been watching? Oh, man. I, I uh, decided to jump into a series that might be a guilty pleasure. I don't know. It's not very guilty for me. Um, I forget when this started. It was years back, uh, they made the television show Channel Zero, Yes, um, yes. based on, on Creepypasta Creepypasta memes, yeah. Um, of course, we are both writers, but one of my big interests is folklore and mythology, and I love Creepypasta because it's sort of internet folklore. Um, so I decided finally to, to watch the show because I was kind of afraid that it might be stupid. And it might be ugly. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I really yeah. wanted them to treat it with care because, you know, even though stories are free, they can still inspire some really interesting stuff. Yeah, and sci-fi as a producing company mm-hmm. of, of modern media is super hit or miss. Yeah. Right? Like, um... You know, this is the company that made, ostensibly, Battlestar Galactica, which is a a titanic achievement of science fiction. But they also made, oh, I don't know, uh, the second Dune miniseries, which is not good. So, uh, there's, uh, yeah, like, so which uh, Channel Zero did you uh, check out? Them all. Um, Mm -hmm. But we watched the entire first season, because it's based on one of my favorite creepypastas in the movies, which is uh, Candle Cove. I think that's everybody's favorite. Maybe except for except for Ted. I mean, if they ever really did a fair adaptation, I know there's a film version, but if they did Ted the Caver right, that could be terrifying. And Uh and it's such a well constructed little story. 
Um, but the Candle Cove season is actually really good. Um, it's, it's very good. Yeah. I, I was shocked. I, I, first of all, it had Paul Schneider in it. So every time he came on screen, I could shout something about Mark Brandanaquitz. Yeah, but he um, doesn't do a lot of stuff anymore. So uh, he does. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see him because he <laughs> he like dropped off the map. I guess. Um, yeah, apparently he was really kind of deeply unhappy with not Parks and Recreation as a project, but just being in Los Angeles, working, you know, in that area as an actor and so he wanted to move kind of back to the midwest or, or to other locales and he sacrificed a, a lot of work opportunities to do that because generally if you're working in tv you need to be la vancouver new york yeah so mm -hmm. and you know I, i've always liked him i even liked him on parks and rec even though you know, he was one of those characters that people generally struggled with um but the star of the show for me is Fiona Shaw, who I already love. Uh -huh. um, she's just a, a fabulous character actress. And I just, I love to watch her in most of the things that she does. And she was absolutely fabulous. She plays Paul Schneider's mother. Uh -huh. um, and it was, it was, it was interesting. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I, I've I've also seen that season. It's, it's been quite a while, but um, I remember enjoying it immensely. Uh, it's a great season of TV, and I enjoyed it a ton. The other seasons are are less strong, in my opinion. Uh, the second season's pretty good, but that one works really well. They they did a great job with it. I liked. I really liked the look. I think it was really well edited. Um, and it took its time to kind of unfold the story. Um, we're starting the second season. Uh, that one's based on No End House, which is another absolutely wonderful creepy pasta. Um, but we haven't we haven't gotten a lot further into that because I also got distracted by watching Anna Gadsby's stand up. Um, I don't know if you've watched stuff yet uh no i don't think so oh god highly recommend it. Oh, okay just cool. blistering um if nana is the one to start with because it was her big sort of jump um into american audiences at least mm -hmm. uh but i also watched the special that's more recent called douglas super funny just absolutely wonderful social commentary and she talks about having autism and being gay and just absolutely she's really really funny nice uh, i think i've seen some clips of hers um floating around uh, and I, I i've always found them funny but yeah that's definitely some some comedy i could get down with for sure cool um, well that sounds good but yeah that's that's what i've been watching um, nice and of course, I did watch Twilight to prepare yes. a little bit. Yeah, and I, I had to as well. Um, I, I did not have a ton of prior experience with Twilight. I would say my main experience watching it um, and actually paying attention was actually in Rift Tracks form. 
um, watching it sort of with the additional commentary provided by Mike J. Nelson and friends. That's my favorite way to watch it. It's it's a good way to watch it. I mean, it doesn't really detract. I mean, if you're in, you know, if you're into watching the movie, it doesn't really detract from anything. I don't think the comedy is is additional. Um, but so this was the first time that I'd really you know sat down and just really wanted to kind of let myself get invested in the film because um, I was not a huge fan when it came out. I, obviously, this was not marketed to me. I was not the intended audience, um, which is fine. Like I'm not asking that every movie try to, to get my attention. Plenty of movies try to get the attention of the middle-aged white male, so that's fine. Uh, other movies need and deserve to exist. Um, but it, it certainly was not in my wheelhouse and, um, you know, I didn't make a ton of effort to, to break down. Um, I didn't watch a ton this week. Uh, I had a few things I was catching up on, some stuff to watch with the kids. I've, I've started rewatching, uh, you know, I've mentioned before that I, I got sort of hard into wings there for a while. And, uh, so I continued on with that till about halfway through the third season when they did the Frasier cameo, uh, cause Frasier, you know, Cheers was wrapping up and. They were obviously seeding the idea of Frasier sort of living on beyond that show. And uh, I immediately switched to watching Frasier. And so now I'm I'm like uh, two, three seasons into Frasier, which is a comedy that uh, I'll be super honest, I don't think would work today. I do not think that comedy would play. I don't think anyone would care. I don't know how Uh, anyone would relate to it. I'm not even sure how we did. (laughs) I, I think I've got the... You know, the formula part of it, I think, is actually surprisingly coy because Frazier and Niles are obviously positioned as these incredibly effete, hoity-toity, you know, upper class. You know, they know art, they know opera, they know wine, you know, these kinds of things. One, most of that has been sort of egalitized at this point, to bastardize a word, um, to where those things are much more accessible to, quote-unquote, the common person than they were in, say, 1993. You know, if you want to know about opera, you've got Wikipedia, you've got a Spotify, you know, you know, Spotify membership, you can go know about opera. Same with wine, you know. I get that wine, I get that, that ad in my social media feed all the time. These two guys from MIT created the ultimate wine guide, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, that stuff's everywhere now. But also, in terms of the writing of the show, it's very careful. Almost everything that Frazier references in terms of those highfalutin quote-unquote concepts are things that in my opinion most people would know right it's referencing you know a piece of music like like Debussy or something where yeah if you've got even a smattering a smattering of awareness you know what that is right really it's Niles who goes off the deep end and he'll start talking about highly specific things and whenever that happens Frazier immediately knocks him down a peg every time yeah that kind of in-depth knowledge is always couched as incredibly awkward right and and even fraser looks at that and goes no that's even dorks don't like this dork (laughs) right and and so it gives you this position as a viewer that you get to feel smart but also smarmy at the same time it's a really carefully constructed writing right i don't i guess you could call it a style for the show but it really allows you to feel like you're watching something smart when in reality you are watching something very, very basic, right? The comedy of it is very basic. 
the only things that I've really been impressed by in terms of having some really some really solid awareness is that every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while, Frazier will actually dispense semi-legitimate psychological advice from a real place of, of like, yes, that is a, a therapeutic concern. Uh, but that's rare and usually very specific. Um, but otherwise, the comedy, I mean, you know, the guys that wrote this one too, David Angle and, and you know, all the students who came over from Cheers and Wings and all those shows, they're really good about their character setups and having consistent, reliable, every time jokes with characters that you kind of grew to depend on they become habitual right like niles never remembers who Roz is ever uh Roz is constantly going on a date with a new guy frazier is constantly perturbed and pulling his hair out over something his dad has done uh the dog will always you know stare or do something when nobody's looking daphne will always have a psychic vision you know like that kind of stuff like it's it's just they have these pillars of how these characters behave they set them against each other, and then that becomes reliable, right? It's it's the same basic effect as watching, um, you know, I don't know, Law and Order, you know, or it's the same thing every week, just remix slightly enough that you don't pay attention, and and it's clever. I mean, it works. It's very it's very comfortable. It's comfort food. Um, television. Yeah, uh, it's it. I'm enjoying it, but I honestly think if anybody pitched this show today and tried to do it in the current sort of climate of comedy on television i don't think anybody take it to it. youtube you weirdo <laughs> yeah exactly you want to shoot that here i don't think so but uh, so i've been watching a little bit of that and a few uh movies that uh, we may have in the, the near future i got a couple recommendations from uh some listeners of films that they think we should talk about so we'll, we'll throw those in the mix um but yeah so i think uh let's go ahead and, and move into Twilight, which we need to uh, address the fact that Twilight, in the grand scheme of things, is not a failure, not an abject failure. Um, so its Rotten Tomatoes score is very middle of the road, quite literally. It's 49% out of uh, about 200 reviews. And, uh, you know, the critical consensus is divided, right? The audience score is much higher, 73%, which makes a lot of sense. This is a movie that if you came into it with an awareness of Stephanie Meyer's books, I think you're going to be satisfied with it. There will be things you don't like, but for the most part, I think you're going to enjoy this film. So it makes sense that the audience is pretty satisfied with it. But so not a, a you know outright critical box office disaster uh, per se, but it is a film series that has lost a bit of its luster as time has gone on. A lot of people now look on these films with a great deal of mocking in their hearts. Uh, and for good reason, in some cases. Uh, so I'm going to let you take over here, sort of give us the synopsis of the film, for those who may not know what Twilight is, I suppose. And uh, then we'll get into some of the reviews and uh, our discussion. Um, well, Twilight is, in many ways, a landmark in in uh, literature, whether we like it or not, which I'm not a fan of the books. Um, I'm not even really a fan of the films. I've seen them. Um, so I'm not coming at this as someone who is big into Twilight. Um, it wasn't it wasn't aimed at me. I even though I am 
technically within the age group, I think that was targeted, and I'm not that far off from Stephanie Meyer's age. Um, I don't like vampires. <laughs> I, I'm not interested in vampire media, mostly, um, unless it's John Carpenter's vampires, then I'm interested in it. <laughs> Just like um, James Wood action, Woods action, you can't resist. Exactly, I can't. Um, you could. Those <laughs> jeans, those 90s dad jeans. High quality. Oh, Lord. Um, but Twilight is, is a big deal because... I'm going to try and make this as brief as possible to see if I can center my thoughts. Novels, originally, were um, conceived as something to entertain educated women who were stuck at home. So... Yeah, if we go, like, way back to where the... The, the beginning the of the novel. novel. We're talking the Victorian. So, from the, the outset, the audience for this type of story would have been female, because novels in their inception were geared toward a female audience. So that, over time, we saw things kind of go the other way to where novels are now dominated by you know people who walk into different walks of life, different genders, different sexualities. But science fiction and fantasy are still male, extremely white male dominated genres of literature, of media in general. Although that is thankfully changing, it is still trying. If it's you look Trump. at the at the the sheer volume of what is released, it's it's still um, we're we're doing a lot to to push in the other direction. The only problem is is now we we're not um, we're not telling as many female centric stories. I I worry, uh, but this is a very female centric story. The gist of Twilight um, is Bella Swan, great name. Mm-hmm. Is the protagonist of this beautiful, beautiful swan, swan. Uh, which you know this suggests a, a little connection to to the ugly duckling with mm-hmm. um, a little table. Yeah, I guess before we we've got to acknowledge here that Stephanie Meyer went to Brigham Young, right, uh, BYU, uh, and has holds a degree in romance literature, romance era literature. Is that correct? I'm trying to remember her exact schooling, but she's got an English degree from a. a, a top-notch university like this girl uh, i think she studied um like english literature i, I think yeah like i I'm, I'm not gonna presume but she knows her stuff she is she is not an ingenue who like wrote this in high school and yeah. just happened to work no she very thoughtfully built the structures of this story with a lot of mythological components in mind and, and a lot of very telling and very direct connections to popular English romance fiction of, you know, the Jane Austen persuasion. Right, which, which is why I bring up the origin of the novel, because um, vampire stories and romantic vampire stories are actually not a new invention. Um, the origin of, of vampires in literature often has ties to romance, to um, sexuality, to... Um, particularly how those things intersect with youthfulness because you have the immortality aspect in vampires. Mm -hmm. So this is all really well informed. Um, 
When it came out, however, it was marketed toward a very female audience. This book was being sold to women, primarily straight women, primarily white women, um, which, yeah, it's problematic in and of itself. Yeah. But the, the gist of it is it is, it is well-informed, but it is about Bella Swan. She is a teenage girl in a new town. Uh, she's moving in with her father, so she's in a new city um, in the Pacific Northwest. And she meets a boy. My goodness. A boy. Um, she meets yes. a boy. And this boy is a vampire, but it's not a traditional vampire. He doesn't uh, die when he comes into contact with sunlight. Instead, he sparkles. Mm. Um, that's going to be the big the big thing that people hated, I feel like. Right. Everyone um, objected to the sparkling. The, and the films amplified it because the, the sparkling effect... Um, she didn't write about it quite... Yeah, she yeah. didn't write about it quite like that. Um, um, I think the main issue is that vampire fiction has been a very popular subset of fiction for quite a long time. Uh, experienced a huge resurgence in the 1980s because of Anne Rice, who I yeah. we are going to, we are going to talk about Anne Rice. Um, so there are a lot of people who take their vampire fiction very very seriously, and there were many people. And I remember at the time that the the groundswell of resistance to the success of Twilight was happening. Uh, I was teaching at the time, and uh, you know, so I was in a high school where 14-year-old girls were eating these books alive. And and there was a huge pushback. And, and I was, you know, one of them in some ways. I mean, I'm a teacher, so I'm never going to tell a kid that they're stupid for reading a book. That's, that's a horrible thing to do. I don't care what book you're reading. If you're enjoying it, you, you enjoy it. Um, but I remember the resistance, and one of the major things was, why didn't she just call them something else? Why do they have to be called vampires? Just make up a new thing if you want to give them a whole new set of powers. Which I get, I I understand, you know, what the resistance, because, you know, these monsters, if you will, these universal monsters from the dark universe, uh, whatever, uh, they have been presented in very specific ways for a very long time. And people were highly resistant to change, right? But I think we've seen, again, some people come around on that. If you uh, watch what we do in the shadows, which is... Um, they play with different types of vampires, right? Like this is a kind of vampire. This is kind of. I, I think there's even some jokes about sparkly vampires in there somewhere. I don't remember oh, no, uh, no. the first season, but um, but so it, it's just one of those things that a lot of vampire purists, if we even want to call them that, were highly resistant to the idea that a vampire could be anything other than what we know. And Stephanie Meyer wasn't really interested in that. No, this the books were based on a dream that she had. Um, the lore. She she had a dream with very clear setting. She saw the Pacific Northwest, and she saw I believe Edward Cullen was in the dream. Um, so she's she's written about it extensively. You can you can of course do your Stephanie Meyer research. I didn't read the books. I of course encouraged people to read them if that's what they were into because I just don't I don't know. I read Stephen King and I can't judge people. <laughs> I mean he's yeah, one of the most absolutely. commercially successful writers in history. Popular fiction. 
Um, so it's, if, if it's popular, it's popular for a reason. You may not exactly. like the reason, but it is popular for a reason. Exactly. And I guess for for me, the the hubbub surrounding Twilight when it was a novel series before it became a movie, we all saw the writing on the wall. It was going to become a movie. Yeah, it was optioned almost immediately. Um, yeah. Then it languished for about three years before they were able to get it made. Yeah, I mean, the book was published in 05. The movie came out in 08. Yeah. Um, I actually watched it with some uh, teenagers who were excited. They had read the book um, as their sort of pleasure reading in school. And they were excited to see the movie as kind of a treat. Um, I was working in a special education reading department. So we had people who struggled with reading. And Twilight was the, the book that sort of unlocked it for them. So I, I look at it as, eh, you know, I don't like vampires. But if someone else does, if that's what gets them to pick up a book, if that's what makes them feel like they're a more accomplished reader, absolutely. But when I watched the movie, I found myself enjoying it. I was prepared to hate this film because it's just about a lot of things that don't interest me like teenage romance and vampires <laughs> that's just not something I'm, I'm drawn to but I found myself engaged by this film and it was to the point the hatred on the film was so big and so great that I actually just didn't talk about enjoying the film because I didn't want to get made fun of yeah, and I think that was a, an experience many people had, especially if you were kind of on the fence about it. You know, the rabid fans were going to be fans, and and many of the reviews that we'll we'll read sort of mention that. If you already like this property, you're going to like this movie. But would it bring new people in? And that I think it did, but I don't think anybody talked about it. Um, well, the reason they didn't talk about it, and and this won't be the first time that we talk about this aspect of of the film of the franchise in general. The hatred of teenage girls. The world just seems to hate them. I think it doesn't respect them. I think it sees them as an object to be drained of finances, but I don't think it has a lot of respect for the opinions of teenage girls, at least not in United States-based media, which is probably because, and by an overwhelming majority, the people who are still in control of movie studios that are putting out major releases are male. And so they are seen as a market that must be sold to because that is how you you are successful in business. But I don't think that anybody is looking at that group and really valuing what they think. Um, my daughter has recently discovered uh, manga in all of its myriad forms. And, and I would actually suggest that Japan does a much better job of this through manga and anime than we have ever done here in the United States because there are mangas that are designed and marketed, written by women for young girls to, you know, experience and and have some experience with things like relationships, mythology, right? And and art and animation line, you know? art and animation has been an escape for young girls for a long time. Um, probably because through art and through animation, you can kind of distance the female identity a little bit, hide it from. Um, you know, we have all of these amazing female creators who are, are in you know, art, the artistic world who are making like those manga 
collections. And I don't want to—I um, don't want to completely disavow from American comics as well, because we've got characters at Marvel like Kamala Khan, who is a you know a teenage Ms. Marvel, um, and, and she's being written very well. You know, and we've got a lot of people working in American media to try and do these things, but it's always sort of within this much larger context and framework of, well, what's going to sell yeah. to a twenty-year-old man? It's, it's about making money. There's not a lot of artistic integrity in comics, and it doesn't help that we have a. And it doesn't help that we have a huge segment of the population that now says, well, if you make a piece of media that is geared towards a woman or a, an ethnicity other than the mainstream, you know, the, the get woke, go broke movement, you know, if you will, which completely disavows and invalidates the idea that we should be creating media for all groups. Right? Yeah. Not just one piece of media that every group can engage in, which is like the, the Marvel approach, right? We're going to create one thing that has something for everyone. And this, this media is specifically targeted. This was something that we were talking about a, a little bit earlier um, before the episode is most, sci especially I'm picking on science fiction and fantasy in particular because um, I've grown up in that arena. I've always been a huge lover of science fiction and fantasy. And I found lots of other female connections in that. Mm -hmm. Pretty much all of my female friends that I have are big fans of science fiction and fantasy. But I noticed that we frequently have to find representation in male-dominated film, literature, television. You know, we have to look for the female characters. We have to look for the the real characters that don't feel like they're just there to be a female. Your stock characters that just yeah. kind of populate and fill out the cast. Yeah. Um. So I appreciate when something is almost unabashedly for women. Right. Um. And like I said, even though there's there's a lot of problems with the sexuality in this because it is very straight and it is very white. And it's, that's, it's, that's all problematic in itself. It's very Mormon. <laughs> yeah, because Stephanie Meyer is a huge Mormon. And that's fine. That's fine. This, this movie could very easily be read as a Mormon courtship ritual with vampires. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's, it's all going to depend in, in, on your approach to the film. Yeah. Um, but I guess... I'm I'm a much bigger fan of this because it seems to be gearing itself toward an audience that is really sadly underrepresented. And when they do get representation, it's misrepresentation because teenage girls are never really given a lot of facets. They're just they're very one dimensional. Yeah. Um, and you can say that Bella Swan is is one dimensional. Um, Kristen Stewart is our protagonist in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess let's wrap up the synopsis. So we have yeah. Bella. I got you off sidetracked. I apologize. No, uh, but so Bella is moving to Forks, Washington. Her mother has remarried and they are now going on the road because he's like a minor league baseball player or something. And so uh, to give them space to go discover themselves and settle and whatever, uh, she's decided to move and live with her father who she only sees sporadically. And he lives in Forks, Washington. So... Pacific Northwest, right? Uh, which is a gorgeous setting, and the, and the film does exploit it and use it very, very well. Um, but so Bella gets to high school, 
it's basically a fish out of water story for the yeah, first half, pretty much. It's it's your standard fish out of water new high school story. It's but very much needs... new girl in town, which is, I mean that that trope in and of itself is a very kind of female oriented story. Being the new girl, being the fish out of water, that's a very Breakfast frequent. Yeah, that's a very frequent trope that you see um, in media that is geared toward women, I guess. It's it's a setup that's been proven effective, yeah. and so people feel very comfortable with it. Um, so she arrives, she meets Edward. Uh, there's an immediate connection between them. Edward is initially repulsed by her, which I think that seems pretty well. To be, yeah. We'll talk about it. And uh, so she she kind of keeps wanting to approach him and sort of find out what his deal is. And of course, eventually she finds out he is a vampire. We have this sort of side story running about a another group of vampires that is traveling through the area and they are committing heinous acts of murder that are being interpreted as animal attacks due to their brutality and that's right because we've got bad vampires and good vampires in this universe and um edward is a good vampire he tries to control his animal impulses exactly uh there is a wonderful line later in the film that they're vegetarian vampires <laughs> they only eat animals which or drink i animal thought milk, was a, cute people made it's fun. a lovely it's a silly line at its core but it's kind of fun at the same time uh to call yourself for eating an animal a vegetarian but i think that's part of the joke right that's that's they realize how ridiculous it is that's why it's kind of endearing um but so this leads ultimately to a, a, a large final confrontation where one of the bad vampires becomes obsessed with bella and uh, Edward and his family are forced to defend her uh, in the midst of many, many, you know, high school issues and, and stuff that happen over the course of the, the film, which are, are handled pretty well. Uh, so anything else in, in terms of the, the, the basic storyline? Um, that's the gist of, of the story. I mean, the, the details are, are, of course, where we're... We're going to expand a little bit, but um, it's not a complicated story no, in any way. If, if anything, that's one of the things I like about this uh, about this book in the series is that as Stephanie Meyer continues to spin out the mythology of the vampires and werewolves, which are not a part of this book per se, they're kind of backgrounded. Um, as she continues to spin that out, I think the world becomes more problematic. And the central relationship established in this film between Edward and Bella, even though it is a central focus of the remainder of the series, obviously, I, I think it all gets kind of overshadowed by a lot of stuff that doesn't always make sense. But again, when you're talking about a kind of modern take on classic fantasy tropes, you're going to run into that, I think. Well, let's do some critics consensus really quick. Uh, we've already kind of broached the subject in terms of its reaction from people at the time, and I think this is a little, this is pretty indicative, right? So as I mentioned before, it says a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and uh, it's, it's pretty much split down the middle, right? And even the bad quote-unquote reviews said that it, it, as a film, it's pretty workable. And uh, the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is 73%, so much more favorable. Not perfect, but favorable. And that's out of 626,000 reviews, um, which that a lot. Uh, most of the other movies we've been looking at are on Tomatoes have a sixth of that, 
at most, right? So this is a movie that people have opinions about, gosh darn it. Uh, on Metacritic, it's a very similar story. It's, it's about a 56, um, with basically the positive and mixed reviews neck and neck, and then only a few interpretatives are really, truly negative. So some of the common uh, reviews here, uh, Claudia Puig in USA Today, uh, Meyer is said to have been involved in the production of Twilight, but her novel is substantially more absorbing than the unintentionally funny and quickly forgettable film. So that was a pretty common thing that I read, that a lot of people just saw that the movie didn't have a lot of weight, nothing that's really going to stick with you, uh, which, again, I think is, is probably up for debate at least a little bit, but I will say that there aren't really any shots in this movie or sequences that I look back on and say, that was great. This is done equivocally great. The only one that gets close, and I will admit my bias here, is the collective soul needle drop as <laughs> Edward saves Bella from the van that's about to crash into her truck. That's really the only one where I was like, that was cool. I liked that. I liked the way it was done. It was sudden. There was no attempt at like a lame special effect of him running. It was just like, he's not there. He's there. He saves her. And, and it's, it's a decent sequence. That it was, was really as cool. arresting as it was supposed to be in the book. Yeah, just a complete shock. You know, something terrible is about to happen and it doesn't. So, um, but that was kind of her, it's forgettable, unintentionally funny, which again, I think a lot of it has to do with the special effects in this film, which we will talk about. This is a film that had a very low budget, $37 million at the time. And that included having to purchase the book rights back from Paramount for them to make the movie. So $37 million plus the who knows how much they had to pay to get the book rights away. So we're talking not a ton of money in 2008 dollars, right? Um, so um, maybe that's where the laughable stuff comes from. There are some goofy lines, as we've already discussed, oh, discussed again. But so that was her approach. Um, uh, Genevieve Kosky from the AV Club, who seems like this would have been more her jam, but apparently not. While the movie attempts to find in a compelling middle ground, uh, between gothic supernaturalism and teenage romance, it usually winds up stumbling into the inane territory implied by book descriptions. So the gothic supernaturalism, obviously coming from the classic sort of understanding of vampire fiction, and then the teenage romance that we are more familiar with as a modern audience in film. And I, I think there is some merit to this complaint. Uh, I think the film struggles when it is attempting to balance the vampire components with the teenage drama components. I think that it, it sort of loses itself for a while. It comes back, but the, the second act is Bella and Edward are sort of discovering each other, if you want to call it that, uh, I think has some of the weaker components. But it, well, one of the, it's, it's hard. One of the things that, that I think is a challenge to this story and, and something that I look at as a positive is... It is very Victorian, like extreme. It feels like this is a novel plucked right out of romantic literature, which was a very short, about a 40 year period in England. It, it feels like it was plucked right out of that. Like it, you could put Bronte sisters associated somewhere with this, like inspired by a Bronte sister story. And I would believe that 100%. I've always called it Pride and Prejudice and Vampires. I mean, that's kind of the way I've always approached it. And this is and this is the book that spawned the, you know, classic novel with genre fiction exactly. mashup. Like for me, know. I go a little I go one step further, it's Wuthering Heights. Yeah, yeah, it certainly 
Similarly, it doesn't have the, the weird creepy brother-sister thing that Wuthering uh, Heights did, but it does have um, the, the very Byronic, uh, very problematic boyfriend. <laughs> um, yes, as far as like who Edward is, for sure. And that, that really matches well with the vampire aspect. I actually thought those two things played really well together in the film. Um, they downplayed the vampire aspect until the last part of the film, when yeah, really it's, the, it's the villain build up. Yeah. conflict arises. And that, that for me, is, is where I kind of lost interest. I liked the relationship parts of the film. I, I don't know. I was, I was engaged by these two very strange people interacting with each other. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I found that part more interesting. I also really, really liked the way that she shot the Pacific Northwest. It looked... Oh, it's beautiful. It I looked... kind of wish everything wasn't through that blue-green filter. I know why she did it. To, to sort of Because the Pacific Northwest does not look like that all the time. Yeah. It certainly can. But one of the hallmarks of the book is the idea that the Cullens live there because it's overcast and gray. And they, right. they don't sparkle. They can go around. But that had a, a very sort of romantic, and of course I say romantic with a big R. Um, yeah, romantic period slash gothic period. Yes, it had that look to it where everything was sort of tempestuous. You know, all of those ocean shots that she does of like the Puget Sound. Just, it's so beautiful. Um, and honestly, it's a thing that the sequels, which I have not engaged with tremendously, I've only seen some of the sequels lose that. They do. And they it do. is to their detriment. I have really seen is. all of the Twilight movies. Yeah. Now, granted, I've seen most of them with riff tracks accompaniment. Of course. That's my that's my drink of choice when it comes to watching movies I'm not especially excited about watching. Right. Um, but I've seen them all, and the the aesthetic falls apart. Whereas this film really zeroes in on that that gothic, big R romantic look and feel um almost like the dude's rug it just makes the whole thing it, together. it, yeah. oh, it ties it the room together it does yeah and it's it a smart made choice it... i'm i'm gonna sing hardwick's praises throughout this entire episode because she is she took something that could have been i mean a lot of these reviewers were angry that the film did not just go full dumb teen movie cheesy but i honestly think it would have been a disaster Yes. To treat this material that way. Because Hardwick was smart enough, because she's the one that took Twilight to Summit. Summit wanted her to make, they had five other scripts for her that they wanted her to make that were all YA. And she threw them all in the trash. She hated them all. But she had read Stephanie Meyer's Twilight by herself on her own and felt that there was something there. So she's the one that pursued Twilight as a project. And I think she either knew from her own experience or just enough, because, I mean, Hardwick directed two of probably the best slice-of-life teen movies ever. 13 is, him, which is 13 and Lords of Dogtown. If you were a teenage girl, you need to see 13. Mm-hmm. I, I just, it's one of those, those buildings, Roman-type stories that it's like, man, you see it, and it's, it's very stark, and it's kind of difficult to watch. Um, yeah, it's a hard watch. It's a difficult movie. It's not like 
kids. Are but it, it very much treats well. young people like real people. The only thing, and I don't know if you've seen this, but the only thing that has gotten close for me since then has been eighth grade by Bo Burnham, uh, which is very much the same. Um, the moment my daughter turned 11, we watched eighth grade together. The, the moment that she was entering middle school. Because it is such a, well, she and my wife watched it together and then had some significant discussions after that uh, about things like male behavior, dealing with people who are cruel to you, right? Like these very legitimate concerns. And that's really the only thing that's gotten close to, to Hardwick's stuff, right? Um, and Evan Rachel Wood was one of the two people that was going to be Bella Swan. She ultimately went with Kristen Stewart, but Evan Rachel Wood was the other alternate. And bringing up Kristen Stewart, I feel that she was unfairly judged for this role. I, I have a lot to say about her performance here, and, and we'll hold that for a minute, but I am 100% in agreement with you. Uh, after watching it again, and, and this could be backtracking, because I have come to respect Kristen Stewart a lot um, in the intervening years, same for Robert Pattinson. Right. Oh. Pattinson has proven himself <laughs> again and again as a fantastic actor. Um, so it could be sort of just backtracking what they've done since then onto this film. But I think they, yes, they were both unfairly maligned for what they did in this movie. Chris and Sue are far more so, more so than Pattinson. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about her. Uh, okay, so a couple more reviews, uh, and this is one I thought you would like. Suggests Anne Rice slumming okay. for a WB special. <laughs> Which is a pretty wicked burn. Um, not bad, all things well considered. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and it's true. And again, I think the biggest divide for me, so if we can hit the common problems before we really launch into the, the analysis and deep dive uh, through the film. The core problem here were people who saw this as a vampire movie and people who saw this as a teen movie and could not reconcile that it was trying to be both or didn't appreciate the balance that was struck. That was really the core problem with Twilight's critical response. Some people wanted it to be a vampire movie, which, again, a PG-13 movie aimed at a bunch of kids is not going to have... I mean, it, it still has some dude getting his throat torn out. Right? So it's very violent. Yeah, the ending of this movie is violent as all get out, right? Somebody gets their leg broken in half. They literally tear another vampire apart limb from limb. So, and you kind of see it. Like it's, it's not, and they set the dude on fire at the end. And they, they burn him in fire in a ballet studio, which is just hilarious. <laughs> but so uh, I think that was the core issue, is, is perception, right? Is this vampire? It's not really vampire. Is it teen? It's not exactly teen. So there's a lot of confusion there. Uh, the other thing was uh, a lot of people, and man, they were just, they were enjoying their blood puns in these critical reviews. Uh, they called the film anemic. <laughs> Um, that it just it didn't have passion right it felt sterile which again i think is a lot to do with the visuals and that cold filter that it puts yeah. over everything david fincher um, gets that criticism he does even though that david fincher's films at their core are the trashiest kind of passion right like just the dirty he's on record saying gross. i think people are perverts," <laughs> and that's what he puts in his movies right um, so I, I don't really get that. I think it is more the tone, right? Because it's very quiet. This is a quiet movie. Yeah. Apart from some of those needle drops, which the soundtrack's actually not terrible. I mean, it's 2008, so it's limited I, its time. But I'm um, I'm going to challenge you there. I love the soundtrack of this film. Yeah, I think it's okay. It's it's 
pretty selective. Um, you know, because this is know, the one that has that Tom York song at the end, where it's like, "Oh it shit, yeah. son!" Yeah, that Tom York song, <laughs> song at the end is is actually a really good credit choice. Bunch of pale um, kids in the Pacific Northwest, and then you drop a Radiohead thing, radio and now you have my attention. But so uh, they called it anemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I'm sure we'll discuss, you know, sort of the, the basic setup of the film and, and how it's put together. But um, that the forbidden love was too much, really, because there's really no consummation in this movie uh, of any kind. There's no consummation to be had for three more movies, if we're being honest. So people didn't like that. They wanted a little bit more of the noodling around. Um, sloppy direction, which I think is an unfair thing, but I get it. Because there are some decisions made with the both editing and how certain elements of the film are shot that when assembled into a complete whole, they don't necessarily hang together. Definitely. But, uh, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it sloppy. I think that's a bit dismissive. Um, and then that it's forgettable. Uh, there's nothing really to hold on to in the film, which, uh, again, a lot of people mentioned. And I, which, I think that has to do with, with it being a culture phenomenon. I mean, look at Marvel movies. I literally can't tell you what happened in the last four of them that I watched. So, I know I watched them. I sat, I, I really did, but I just, I, I got the highlights. That's just, I think that's just a consequence of if you aren't a member of this particular fandom, it's like that term. If you aren't a member of it, you're not going to remember that. Because it's just not meant to be art an artistic endeavor or like made for artistic consumption. I mean, this is this is made for people who are already invested in this lore, in this universe, in these characters. Yeah, I think it helps to see the film as a companion piece to the novels, right? And and I understand people who don't want that. They, you know, the movie That's should true. stand on its own two feet. Completely understandable. Absolutely get it. But that's honestly not how most literary adaptations are handled today. Yeah. They really aren't. Um, you know, we go back to the 70s and 80s where we've got people, you know, hard adapting books and, and you don't have to have seen the book for it to matter. But I think about like um, The Girl on the Train, right? That movie did nothing for me. Like I found it trite. I found it boring. Emily Blunt is always good to watch. She's a great actress. The story was a non-starter. Didn't really care. And then I know people who adore that film. But it was very memorable. They had read the book. They'd read the book, and and the and it executed what the book had done. To be very, fair, very well. Gone Girl. The same. I I love Gone Girl. I I adore that film. David Fincher is my favorite director. Yes. But I also read the book. Mm-hmm. So I was like ready. I did not. <laughs> I did not. And I and for me, Gone Girl is low on my list of Fincher properties. I have only seen it once. It's it is the only David Fincher film I've only seen once. If I can make a recommendation, read the book and then rewatch the film and you'll mm-hmm. see what he did with the film is wonderful. Yeah, I could he took he took all of the best beats from that novel and condensed it into a really watchable film. But I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much if I hadn't 
had that going in. Um, and I think Twilight, I hate to bring Fincher films, but I think Twilight suffers from a lot of the same issues. Sure. I mean, I guess as a counterpoint, we could look at Jurassic Park. Because I did, I read <laughs> Jurassic Park when I was 11. And I was so hyped for the movie. And that movie was so different. <laughs> I loved the book. I thought that the, the Jurassic Park book was great. I mean, I went on this Crichton kick for six years. I read My everything did that dude too. had done. I read every book. Sphere, I was crushed when Sphere came out as a film. Sphere as a movie is, it's not good. <laughs> It's a it's an okay movie, but knowing the book made the movie bad, yeah. right? Like it made it bad. Same with Jurassic Park. The first time I saw Jurassic Park, I was disappointed because it was nothing like the book. I'll but now, but I'll now I recognize I recognize Jurassic Park as being a great movie because they distilled the book down into yeah. its essential pieces and then um, told Forrest Gump. Oh God, yeah, Forrest, Forrest Gump. Gump. It, that it is not. Count. Oh my God, that's a that is a different character. It's a different character. But it managed world, but it managed absolutely. to isolate the absolute best that that story could have offered a film mm -hmm. and, and it, it put it up there. And I'll give you another one and it's the same screenwriter as Benjamin Button. Yep. Because Benjamin Button is a terrible short story. Yeah. <laughs> like that story does not work at all. Well, I mean, I mean it does. You look at who wrote it and it makes sense. <laughs> His protagonists were not likable people. No, not at all. And they were often weren't intended to be. But but what that, that the same dude was what's his name? Ron uh, I cannot remember. Because those are like the only couple movies he's done in the past like thirty years. Um but he adapted both and he turned Benjamin Button into a, a really beautiful story. I think it's it's thirty minutes too long, but it's it's a really beautiful story. But it's only because he took the just the barest elements of that story that he wanted, and then he made it work. Um, this is not that, right? No. Twilight is not that adaptation. It is designed to, I have envisioned Edward Cullen in my mind for three years, and now you are bringing him onto, into real life for me to interact with and see. And, and it's built that way. And I, again, I think most of these adaptations, because the other component of this that we have to address is that this is the film that started the young adult fiction to big screen adaptation craze, right? This is it. This is where the atom bomb dropped. Chris Weitz, who would go on to direct the next Twilight film, tried with the Golden Compass a couple years prior to this, and that was a disaster. Um, Disney tried with Bridge to Terabithia the year before, disaster, right? And there my, were none of these. My struggle with Bridge to Terabithia is that I don't think that should be a movie. No, it doesn't work as a movie. I'm one of those snobby people who's like, you have to read the book and you have to cry about it. Yeah, it's it's a rough story to begin with. But but so this is the movie that kicked that off. And it was the success of, of this film specifically in the second one, which, you know, this is a three and a half billion dollar film franchise. They spent $400 million making these movies and they made 3.5. So this, again, big success. Um, but... Um, you know, this was the, the, the inciting point for those films to get off the ground. And it really is the best of, of the entire franchise. I would say, like, if, you, if you're at all interested in these films, definitely watch this one. 
Maybe don't watch the other ones. <laughs> yeah, the other ones, again, they just, the game gets more complicated and you have to be more invested in the world for any of it to make sense. Uh, pretty much as, sure, as soon as we meet a group called the Volturi, oh. I think things begin to fall apart. You do but get that just... wonderful laugh scene with Michael Sheen. Well, I'd watch Michael Sheen. I'd watch him I'd, shit in a bag. I don't care. <laughs> I'd, I'd, watch, I'd watch Michael Sheen watch paint dry. Yeah. I'd have a great time. It's, it's um, going to be entertaining. Um, and so, I, you know, his presence is always a good thing. But otherwise, the, the world building is not... I mean, maybe the books are better. I'm, I'm not going to... I read a little bit of the first book because I felt like I, I wanted to get a sense of what it was like. Um, and I wanted to see what the Bella character was like. That's mostly what people complained about was Bella's character. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get a sense of that. But I haven't read the other books. So I don't, I don't know how it all translated to film. I don't really know if if the books have more to it. Um, if maybe the world building is a little more effective. Probably. I mean, usually books, you can spend more time on that kind of thing. And they're, and they're very large books, so I have no doubt they that are. a little there's more juice <laughs> where that uh, plot is concerned. Yeah, there's but, definitely some Harry Potter syndrome there where we see just an increase in page count as the series goes on. Yeah, and, and that's, that's totally understandable when you are creating a universe for your characters to live in. Um, but the problem was that part of it didn't translate to film. Originally, what, like I said, what really works is all of the drama between Edward and Bella and how they navigate a relationship as him being um, 104, uh, 100 and something years old, and she's the, 17. Well, the thing that I had completely forgotten and that now has a tremendous amount of relevance is that Edward was dying of the Spanish flu. That's why, yeah. that's why Daddy Cullen saved his life. He was, it was part of the 1918 flu epidemic. Uh, so yeah, he'd be 100 and 104. Um, so there's, I don't know, that's no, 108. 108. No. Uh, this, well, this came out in 2008. I don't remember if the books are set in 2008 or they're a little bit. I think they're. I think matter. they're present day, but he's I, a hundred year old vampire. Who's yeah, he's a, he's really years, old. <laughs> yeah, he's old. Um, you know, I found I found that to be the more engaging aspect of the story in general. And even what I did read of the of the book, that was the more engaging content. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess should we talk about actors? Um, yeah, let's let's kind of go through the film. We'll talk a little bit about the the basics of it, and then we'll I'm sure we'll talk about acting, and then we can sort of you know, settle on that because I think we we do need to deal with it. Um, so as the film opens, the the visual tone is established immediately, right? Everything's kind of blue green. Everything's um, you know the Pacific Northwest. We get a scene of someone hunting a deer in the forest. Um, one of the things I think the film struggles with is trying to make the vampires be a threat. It really doesn't know how to do that. We get a couple of sequences that feel very out of place in the movie of vampires being dangerous, and it just—it's very difficult to to swap tones like that. But the movie opens with like you know someone who is obviously human hunting a deer. Uh, I guess it's supposed to be a Cullen, makes sense. But so Bella arrives. We get a voiceover. 
from Kirsten Stewart where she's contemplating her death. Uh, again, I think it's another theme that touches very closely to this particular age group, right? This is the first, this is usually around the time that a teenager starts to at least have a concept of what death might be. Um, you know, some sense of mortality. So Bella's contemplating her death. She's obviously set apart very quickly as being um, an outsider, right? Well, and she's coming. I want to toss out a, a little quote. Yeah. I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens. <laughs> I think Bella Swan's character is, is introduced to us being built off of that concept. Yeah. That she has entered a period of kind of loneliness and ennui, which, having been 17 and a girl, I know exactly what that feels like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't say that that's that that's not a realistic portrayal in many ways of what it's like to be a 17-year-old woman. Right. Um, One of the things I think Hardwick brings into this, because we're very quickly, Bella settles in at home, she meets her dad. Billy Burke is fantastic as her father. Oh, God, The the father-daughter relationship in this is handled super well. feels very natural, very realistic. There's tension between them, but they obviously love each other. They have history together. Bella is doing this as some kind of weird self-sacrifice, like moving to live with her to let her mom go be free, I guess. Um, So she sort of is carrying that chip on her shoulder a bit, and the dad kind of realizes it. There's a lot of subtlety there. Like, this is where I think Hardwick shines, is in these moments of quiet relationship building between characters. She's really, really good at it. And um, then she moves immediately into the high school and begins to introduce all of her high school friends. And the thing I like about all of her high school friends is that they are all insecure. There mm-hmm. is not one. There is not one member of the group who's just like pretty and perfect and popular, and everyone loves her. The closest we get is Anna Kendrick, and then we see nothing but a stream of things from her mouth about how absolutely unconfident she is in pretty much every circumstance. And she's wonderful at playing that character. Right, Anna Kendrick is a, a joy. Uh, she's good in everything she does. She's definitely good in this, and. The only thing that doesn't work, but it was present in the book, so you kind of have to deal with it, is that all of these girls immediately look to Bella and say, like, you're awesome. Bella rejects this assessment completely, but they all sort of start putting things on her, like they respect her opinion. They, I guess the fact that she is an outsider has endeared her to them, uh, which, again, we can debate, you know, is that realistic or whatever. This, this isn't realism. It doesn't matter. But I love that aspect of all of her high school friends. I also love that the men universally are jackasses. Like, they are constantly, like, shoving things in girls' faces, chasing them in the hallways in stupid ways. Like, they're idiots from the ground up, which I think is a total background element. It's not a huge component of the film, but it establishes immediately why Bella has zero interest in any of them, even though many of them are nice. And why the maturity and sophistication of Edward is irresistible. Exactly. He is not like them. Yeah, and that's, you guys are all dumb. That is the Byronic hero. Yeah. Absolutely that's... summed up to a T. He's not like the other guys. He's he's a little bit mean, he's a little bit bad, he's a little bit mysterious. It's and Miss Shelley draped across the marble top. Exactly. He's in his moment of repose, you know, contemplating the the end of the universe or what have you so and and yes it's why he's immediately interesting uh, compounded by the fact that he 
seems completely uninterested in her, which of course is a classic high school relationship trope. And that's that's another facet of the Byronic hero is he was he is never meant to be accessible. Um, and of course, once you do have access, he is obsessive, which is where the the relationship for me to Wuthering Heights really blossoms because Edward Cullen is very much a conflict. In terms of his his relationship, his, his distance. His disposition is just yeah. very in the beginning it's very off putting. It's it's difficult. He's well the word that always comes up is aloof. Um and I think Robert Pattinson does a, a wonderful job sort of playing with this creepy obsessive vampire boyfriend thing. Mm-hmm. Um Honestly, this would be a fairly difficult part because you have to be interested, right? You have to convey interest and attachment, but at the same time, you have to have this distance and you have to make both of them work. And that's, that's I mean, to me, that, that doesn't seem like a simple thing at all. Yeah, I don't think it is. Um... Um, so we, we could talk a bit about the, the acting here. Uh, Bella, as we're introduced to her in the book, she is written specifically as someone who is shy and awkward, right? The awkwardness becomes a plot point very late in the film, but that she falls down a lot, she trips over her own feet, um, which I, I know we wanted to talk about acting. We can go ahead and get into it here because I think it's you know, apropos for this point in the film. But a lot of people in, in the reviews that I, I read as prep for this felt that you could see how hard Christopher was acting, and that that made her acting bad in this. You could see how hard she was working as an actor, whereas Pattinson's very smooth, he's very calm, he's very restrained. Like, he's he's seemingly a professional actor. So I really chewed on that for a while, especially as I you know was watching the film again. My only issue with that assessment of her in this film is that her performance is too consistent it to be an error to be yeah, a mistake i i don't see it and and it's so unlike her other performances right this is not so that tells me it's a choice right it tells yeah. me that her and hardwick had a discussion bella is awkward bella is quiet bella struggles to relate to people and i think that how they chose to approach it was and this is our second big lebowski reference in this episode <laughs> i apologize but it's like the Coen brothers in that film where Jeff Bridges is supposed to be very intentionally a real person surrounded by Hollywood fake people, mm-hmm. right? He is a guy who gets attacked and he's like, hey, man, because that's what a person the dude is saying. Is on <clears throat> and I think what Kirsten, uh, what Kirsten decided to do was to struggle with her words to get them out, to intentionally mess up her facial expressions um, oh. to, to make them more realistic. Um, and I, ultimately, I think that most of the things she's being maligned for in, in this film for her acting ability are actually very specific choices in an attempt to make Bella seem more like a real person. Not yeah. a Quentin Tarantino real person who cusses sometimes but has an amar- a remarkable ability to express themselves with clarity, yeah. but an actual real person who 
Sounds like an idiot. In the right moment, (laughs) sounds like an idiot. Because if you put ninety nine percent of people in front of a camera, guess what? Like an idiot. And 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 not in a bad way. It's just it is really hard to come up with interesting things to say and do in the moment. And it's very hard to come up with interesting things to say and do when you are in the mindset of a young person like that. Like again, I'm 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 putting it back on the do y'all remember what it was like to be a teenager? To be a they dumbass? And they definitely don't remember what teenagers who aren't in movies behave like. Yeah. Right? And I think that Hardwick does it. I mean, again, the reason Hardwick got this job was Lords of Dogtown and 13. 100%. And the reason why she got it was because those are movies that are still Hollywood. They're still edited. They're still designed. But they portray life as a teenager with mm-hmm. some degree of realism. And I think that that's what's going on here. Now, and, and the reason I suspect that is because when it's just Bella and Edward, when it's just their conversations out in the forest, that stops. Yeah. It goes away. She's much more comfortable when it's just them. But when you throw other people into the mix, or they're in class, or they're in a cafe, she is far less comfortable. And it and seems... I, again, I think it's a choice. When, and you know, you were saying about it being a conscious choice to be awkward. She is extremely awkward. She looks very uncomfortable. But that's... I like that. I like that she does not appear comfortable in her own skin because that's that's the character. Right. It's the character. And it, the reason why that character resonates so powerfully with that age group is because that is the natural state, unfortunately, for many people in that age group. And that's where we're going to stop it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you need to get a hold of us, you can always find me on Twitter at tbaskin. You can also find Catherine at Baskinator. Uh, I know her Instagram is also the Baskinator, and she updates that frequently. You can also contact us at fpeace theater on Twitter and at failurepeace at gmail.com if you have any inquiries. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. In any case, thanks for listening to this shortened episode. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will be back with more discussion of Twilight next time. Thanks. Thank you.